When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. are looking at a remarkable idea, an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality, for this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days or go to michaeldeacon.com. Now on a special afternoon delight edition of End of Days, Katie Hopkins is my guest. She is an English journalist and media personality. She was a contestant in the third series of The Apprentice. Of course, she had further appearances in the media, she became a columnist for British national newspapers, now currently on the rebel.media. Some have called her the British Ann Coulter, or an evil Ellen DeGeneres. She's known as many things, but she prefers the title, Biggest Bitch of Britain. How can you not like that? Once again, thank you for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again, not on a night like this. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here, wherever you are, out there, anywhere in this great universe. It's such a tremendous honor to be here. Now, let's bring in Katie. Katie, are you alive? <laughs> I am alive, patiently waiting. Wonderful. Earlier, I referred to you as Britain's biggest bitch. <laughs> are you still living up to that? It's a title I had for quite a long time, actually. Uh, are you one I don't mind too much. Are you still living up to it? Um, I don't think I ever did, really. I think, um, you know, perhaps Britain wasn't quite prepared for someone who said things that felt really uncomfortable, but I said them to people's faces. So I don't think it really makes you a bitch. It just makes you kind of honest. And the British way, of course, is to be polite, uh, to tiptoe around everything, have a cup of tea and not tell anyone how you really feel. And I don't really work on that same level. I'm not terribly British about my views. We are very much cut from the same cloth, Katie. <laughs> I don't know if that's good for you, dear. It might but not yeah, be. I quite like it. <laughs> yes, understood. Uh, but Katie, my goodness, you are a very controversial figure 
Even today, before doing this interview, I thought, oh, no, she got in trouble again, so we might not talk. <laughs> I don't know what that was about, even. I don't know why you heard of me. It might be because I've recently been in Wales, which uh, many of your listeners will know um, is a sort of random and unimportant offshoot of the United Kingdom. But their school system is failing horribly, and they force children there to learn Welsh, which is a dead language, um, and to learn maths in Welsh, even if you struggle with both maths and Welsh. Um, and so there's been a bit of a, a noise being made by politicians in Wales for my presence in their country. Oh, yes. And I was going to ask you about that. But before we jump into all these other great topics, I mm-hmm. thought I thought we could go back to your roots just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. You were just a quiet Christian girl, if I recall. <laughs> I am. And I think that's one of the things is I am super super normal so i come from a really small town in the countryside in england right at the bottom of england the bit where england disappears into the sea that's me um and i grew up to a all-girls school run by nuns dressed as actual nuns who were really pretty mean and i was pretty much a small town girl i used to be the uh bunch girls so there was a local bakery that saw cakes and I was their uh, sort of bakery assistant Saturday morning in town. So really small town, really small country life. Um, and actually, that's more or less what I've come back to with my children and my family. They all live in the countryside, too. And then I spend my life pretty much on the road. Understood, understood. And at what age did you come to realize that you were going to take a different path in life? I think... Um, You know, when I speak to young people quite often, it's about how life doesn't always go in a straight line. Like this idea that you plot B, you'll start at A, you go to B and you know where you're headed. You know what your career is going to be. You know the direction you're going in. You know what exams you're going to take. All of that stuff. You're supposed to know all those answers. And my sense is that even if you think you know all those answers, that might not happen. So I went to university. I was sponsored by the Intelligence Corps. I had a 35-year regular commission in the Intelligence Corps. I went through the Military Academy Sandhurst, which is, I guess, America's West Point, uh, but better. And uh, and then uh, I was eventually, I had to leave because uh, just as everyone else passed out to their units, I was medically discharged because um, for much of my life I've been an epileptic. So I went into business and then ended up on the TV and whatever. But I guess my overriding thing is I was supposed to be the first female general, but somewhere along the way, um, (laughs) my career took a different path. And so, you know, that's where I am. I I still see myself now fighting for my country. So I guess in some regards I've come full circle. But yes, things don't necessarily always work out in the in the direction you planned. Right, right. And I agree 100 percent on that. And I'm thinking, Katie, were you the quiet girl in high school and in college? Or did you, yeah, were yeah, you already out the I box? Was. No, no, no. I was really kind of quiet. Like I just had a group of friends. I got on with it, but I always had kind of, um, itchy feet, I suppose would be the British expression. Itchy feet means ah, yes. a kind of calling to, to get out and about that kind of need to find something bigger. So I went from my little convent school to a massive, state sector or public um, comprehensive sixth form college with 2000 students. And then at the age of 17, I got a kind of what do they call them scholarship to Australia. So at 17, Mm. I went to Australia 
to be a schoolgirl um, at Pennant Hills High School in Australia, in Sydney, for a year, and living as a Australian student and then doing a kind of talking uh, tour of Australia to, it was supposed to harness relationships between Australia and the UK. I don't know if I did a very good job of that, but at 17, <laughs> right. I was already off on the road. So I guess that may be pretty unusual now when I look around at 17 year olds who barely seem to leave their mum's bedroom, um, spare bedroom. I, I think we grew up a little bit earlier when I was a girl. Yeah, definitely right. You are well traveled. You've been all over the place at a very young age. Like you said, most people haven't really experienced that. And you mentioned the epilepsy thing. Mm. I, I do want to ask you about that because you, you don't know this about myself, but I actually had about four or five seizures in one day back when I think I might have been like a junior in high school. So I was probably maybe 16 years old when this happened. And it only happened to me once. And the doctors don't know what, what happened to me. I don't even know what happened to me. But I've never experienced this sort of thing. And when I was doing research uh, into you, I, I recall people were were alluding to karma and that's why you, you took a spill and, and all this nonsense. And to be honest with you, Katie, I don't believe in karma whatsoever. And if karma existed, this world would cease to exist, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. So my epilepsy, and I'm sorry for your fix, and I think anybody yeah. who has epilepsy, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a cruel kind of condition. Like so many conditions are cruel, but epilepsy is cruel because if you have fits or seizures, whatever people want to call them, you don't know when they're going to come and you don't know when you're going to drop like a little stone and start shaking about. Right. For people around you, it's so hard for them to know what to do. Some people think you're a drunk. Some people think you're a druggie. You know, I've been thrown off trains before because people think that you're on drugs or something. And and so it's a... Oh, my God. Condition. You've been... Yeah. It's, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people, it's confusing for people. And it's hard for people to register and understand. I totally get why epileptics used to be burnt at the stake. Because if you think of it, it is it is the most peculiar thing to watch someone. My children have watched me fit. And it's not... It's not great, but I will say um, there is hope out there. So I had a big brain surgery uh, in April, I think, 2016. And right. now mm -hmm. I've gone from having kind of four fits a night, big fits that would dislocate uh, both one or both of my arms um, uh, at a time. And I've gone from that to having no fits at all. So my life now is completely different, completely new. And uh, I get to live on, which is kind of annoying for my critics. But I know, right? Me. <laughs> yes, they will not like that. You are no. living well. Um, Katie, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, though. Have you ever tried anything, uh, let's say, like CBD oil or any of that or anything I, of that you nature? Know, I, I did it. But I, uh, I had, I took every drug there was for epilepsy and there was a point there near the, and I say near the end, but I don't mean like near the end of life, but near the end where I got to a point where my epilepsy was so severe and the, the dislocations and the trying to live kind of, what would I say? In the life. margins of epilepsy. Yeah, it got kind of too much and I was thinking of what well, I would try anything and of course I would, 
if if I had a ch- if one of my children had fits, I'd try it in a heartbeat. Of course I would. Oh yeah. But because my my um epilepsy was kind of related to a benign tumor in my head, mine was a little different. But I would definitely say if if you were a parent of an epileptic or epilepsy yourself, try it. Try anything. Try anything that makes your day a tiny bit better. I completely think go go with what you want and don't be told no by anybody. Oh yes. I agree with you on that one. And my goodness, were, were we possessed, Katie? Do you think, do you think we were under demonic attack? It makes you wonder, cause it is, it is such a cruel and curious thing, this ability to, you know, make your muscles do things that, you, so I, I bit through my whole tongue. Once, Holy hell. And, you know, so my arms would be out of joint, the emergency services would come take me to, uh, ER and I would have my arms relocated. It, it broke my back. So all, all I mean, I suppose, is the, the ability for your body to be almost super strength against itself is a really curious thing. And, and I, I think it's a very dark, there's some darkness behind that. And I, and I don't think there's an easily explainer for epilepsy. And I, I understand why people are frightened of it. And my biggest fear was always that somehow I would have imbued it in my children but fortunately that's not been the case um but it is it is when i get emails from parents whose children have it it breaks my heart because there's very few words that can be found to be positive other than i now don't have fits my goodness i feel like giving you a hug now oh don't please don't and i have no um you know no sympathy or or feelings of self-pity at all i just i think uh, what it does is is make us a little tougher in terms of uh, if you can endure stuff in your daily life, then other things you may need to go through seem rather mild by comparison. So I think that's it. It makes you a little tougher. And it really does. Good- yeah, it, it really does. And one of the scariest things in, is when you actually see someone else having a seizure. Uh, that is kind of frightening. I had a friend who just randomly had one. And when he went down, I thought he was joking at first. But when he hit the ground, his head just missed a 35-pound dumbbell that was right next to him. It, it is terrifying. And the last major fit I had in the main road in the middle of London, I was on the phone to my husband as I was crossing the road. I was wearing a cream coat. I, I mean, I can see all this as if it was yesterday. But and evidently, as I went down, um, I chomped through my face and I knocked out a couple of teeth and I broke my face. But um, so there was blood everywhere. And this woman picked up the phone, was speaking to my husband, who was like, what's happened? What's going on? There's all these car horns. And she said, I don't know. I think she's been shot. Oh, so, you've been shot. <laughs> so my husband is at the end of the phone thinking I've been shot in the middle of London, which isn't altogether surprising in terms of if people know my backstory and the right. people that aren't necessarily my biggest fan. So <laughs> it was a bit more worrying for him than it was for me. But it, it all turned out well. And I would say, actually, the kindness of strangers is a marvellous thing. And it's something you really get to uh, benefit from and be ever grateful for when you have, I don't know, I guess any kind of mishap in public. My 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 sense is that people are inevitably incredibly kind. Yeah, for, for the most part, I really do believe, in my opinion, that people do have a good, co- uh, good heart mm. for the most part. Um, mm. It's usually clouded by lots of anger and hate, in my opinion, and that's kind of what the conflict is all about and lots of people who go after you Katie they are under under the impression that you're narrow-minded that you're a racist 
and all this other nonsense. It's really ridiculous. And the media goes after you, uh, just relentlessly. I think, I think they're very unfair, uh, towards you. And yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I think I'm uh, certainly a target. Oh yeah. I truly believe so. And I'm surprised Twitter hasn't exactly got rid of you completely like they have many others. It's a curious thing. I'm surprised as well, actually, given the number of complaints I'm sure that are made by these groups that organize such things. Um, and I think one of the strangest things of all, of course, is that when I actually spend time with people or, you know, we get to talk in civilized fashion like this, um, you know, in truth, many of us who are positioned as far this or far that or extreme this or extreme that are actually probably um, joined by the fact that we're wildly libertarian at heart and in many ways um, people can do whatever the hell they like and I'm not in the slightest bit bothered by how you want to live your life and what you want to do with it as long as it doesn't massively impinge on mine and I'm not expected to pay for it and you don't need the state to do anything for you. Um, you know, and I think that's the thing is it feels like a very laissez fair kind of attitude from me from someone who's portrayed as a extreme right winger or uh, a crazy racist. But I think labels are just people's way of dealing with things that they are angry about or reject in the same way that maybe fear is the way people deal with epileptics. They're not sure how to handle it, so they're scared or throw you off a train. They don't mean it, but they don't know how to handle it. And the same way with me, they don't know how to handle this outspoken woman who won't shut up, so they just stick a label on it instead. Yeah, they call you a monster and all this other nonsense. <laughs> and, you know, I'm talking to <laughs> you now, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this is <laughs> such a... Me, yeah, this is such a, you're such a lovely lady here. I don't, <laughs> don't say that. Do not... <laughs> Give the game away, Michael. This is not part of the deal. But people do say when they meet you, there's a strange thing where you can look at them and go, ah, you're you're maybe not my biggest fan. So you can see in their little eyes that they're like, ah, it's her. But then that you can also see this disappointment because I am pretty little. So I'm only like, I'm like five foot eight and like 130 pounds and kind of small. So people, um, people always go, but you're so small. And I was like, well, what did you expect? And they were like, well, at least something big. And so there's this idea of being a monster. And in order to be a proper monster, you're supposed to be large. And so that's a really funny thing that words can convey brilliantly in a way that um, TV and other medium can't. Uh, words make you sound larger than you are. And I think that's somewhat a glorious thing. Yeah, well, you definitely have the larger than life persona. So that's a good thing. The people, they perceive you this way. They kind of fear you. That's a good thing. I think probably it's a good thing. And I think that gives you the ability then to surprise people. Oh, yes. The most obvious thing you could do is walk into the room, be a complete cow, punch someone in the face and call someone fat. But I think when you (laughs) don't do that and actually you just kind of tiptoe politely about being nice to people, that's a surprising thing. And then that forces them to question all that big monster they built up in their head and how did that monster get there if it's not real? Um, and that can be a really helpful thing when people like maybe you or I or others are trying to help people see that perhaps what goes on in the media isn't necessarily the whole picture. Someone like me is quite useful for that because me in reality is probably quite different to the me built up in the media. Correct. And going back to Twitter really quickly here, I hmm. I see you have been going to battle with uh, Ice-T. <laughs> and I'll call him what his mama calls him. That's uh, Tracy. 
Tracy. She was so hoping for a girl. And I feel bad for Ice-T for that. But I can't, I can't even remember what he came at. Was it Idris Elba? I can't remember what he came at before. I think it may have been my video about James Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't like that. He got very bothered by that. And of course, it's amazing that the 60-year-old Ice-T, completely irrelevant uh, today, had had the nerve to go after you like that. <laughs> well, it was more that I didn't even know. So I'm sorry for that, Mr. T. But um, so I didn't see it until it came up on another article where it was like, how mad is this? In 2018, Twitter's all about Ice-T and Katie Hopkins. And I was like, well, I don't even know what that is. So I looked, and then that was when I saw that he joined in the debate, rather, which is a good thing, I think. I think this idea, if Twitter's used in its most interesting way, it has a great way of, you know, joining people that otherwise might not get to speak and allowing people to express views uh, quickly and openly. And I think I think that is a little bit of a joy. And I think as much as I know, you know, censorship and conservatives are censored and we don't have Milo and whatever, I do think Twitter gets a hard time sometimes, given it doesn't make much money for the effort that it gets put into it. Um, and actually, it has been a fun platform. And if, if it went tomorrow, I still think Twitter was a, a fun era to be around, especially right. with the presidency that we have. My goodness, yes. And uh, to close up with Twitter here, uh, yeah, the parents were upset with you. That's one of the other uh, things I did see as well. I guess you took photos with with some kids and the parents were angry that they were, I guess, perceived as hoodlums or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was in Wales doing this thing on schools that, you know, Welsh school system is performing poorly, whatever, whatever. And, And I get emails from people asking me to come. That's why I go and do these little journeys of mine is right. generally because I've had a lot of emails on the same topic and therefore I think, right, I'll go find out. So anyway, I went and to open the piece, I wanted to film in front of a high school. But because I didn't want to involve children or parents at that point, I just wanted to open and present what I was doing. I went on a Sunday evening at 8 p.m. However, there was this group of kids cycling around. There was a camera. They came over. They wanted to be involved. They wanted to interview. They wanted to be on the microphone. And of course, I let them join in. And then they were like, let's do a picture. We did a picture. And I said to them, cover your faces. And so then they went full kind of their interpretation of gangster, I suppose. So they flipped the, the bird. They did whatever signs. They had face masks on. I mean, why they had those, I don't know. Anyway, the mothers went crazy. So (laughs) I guess they, and then there was a talk, one of the headlines, bear in mind the boys cycled over, wanted to be interviewed, whatever. The boys, there was a headline that says Katie Hopkins stages photos with underage boys. They try (laughs) to really, they really try to spin that. It's very dark. Yeah. Yeah, It's a very dark thing to do. And then um, some of the mothers reported it to the police. The local council got involved. Um, but I didn't hear anything from the police. But, you know, that's how quickly um, it can escalate. Oh, yeah. Quick, yeah, that, that's just a way of shutting things down, I suppose. And it's ridiculous that parents were upset at you when it's them who bought their children that clothes. It, it's a little like that, or for the boys to be, you know, flipping uh, rude gestures. Well, where does, that, no, yeah, where does that come <laughs> from? It comes from the home. Yeah, yeah and, and also... Um, I think, you know, the, the truth of that school in particular is the standard is very poor there. 
And when you speak to the boys, you know, how is your school? My school's crap. What's the point of your school? No point. And so it's, a, it's unfortunate, but I do think the mothers probably were just angry. And you know what? When we're embarrassed or ashamed, then sometimes that translates to anger. I completely get it. Oh, yeah. But then when the media obviously turn that making you into something like a paedophile, it gets a little bit scary around the edges. It really does. It really does. And, of course, you say one thing, someone gets offended, they could go to your employer and then get you axed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. That's exactly right. And, and I think that's that's part of the silencing that I see is that because I more or less work for myself, I have bosses, but I'm my own kind of person now, um, you know, that's a joy. And we don't have commercial advertisers per se. So there are no lobbying groups that can have me fired. I can be fired just for being not good at my job. And that's absolutely uh, a fair exchange, I, I believe. But I, I see this vast swathe of the British public who know that if they were to even retweet a tweet or even suggest an opinion that's out of line, they will lose their job. I just had a bus driver emailing me. Um, and because we had Allah is great advertised on our buses, our red buses in London during Ramadan at the same period. I don't know if you recall, but there were the London bus attacks on 7-7. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. So at that same time, we had adverts on our red buses going through London saying Allah is great, which obviously is quite, you know, that's quite a lot to stomach um, right. for some of us. But a bus driver just complained to his bosses saying, why have we got these adverts? And he was removed from his post within a week. So the learning is you don't speak out in the UK. Yeah, that's what I noticed about your country. It's starting to, well, I was going to say my country is starting to become a lot like yours. Mm, It is. I don't understand it. It's kind of unusual to see. And this is where we go into a little bit of controversial waters here. Um, I myself live very close to the Mexican border, about 12 miles away. And I interact with lots of people, and when they see me, they perceive that I'm just another Hispanic. And that, well, that's how people judge others very quickly. They're not saying it, but they're thinking it. And I'm of multi-race, and of course, I I don't really have to explain that. I, I just got tired of explaining it to people who would ask. And the thing is, everything goes well with these general conversations until the point where I'm asked about political things and especially open borders. And once I actually tell them how I really do feel about that and how I'm actually against the open borders and how that would really hurt the economy amongst many other reasons. And they look at me like if I just shot someone. It is a crazy idea, isn't it? That you, you would have that view or Almost that because of a way that you might look or be perceived to look, that therefore your opinion must be X or Y, that your opinion somehow has to be consistent with the way someone has perceived that you look. That's a kind of madness. It really is. It really is. They automatically assume that all my points and opinions will automatically align with theirs and um, can't be even more offended than that. And I I do see, though, um, in a way, there's some criticism to be had by maybe people like myself, actually, and others, where I'm thinking about now, I'm sort of pointing the finger at myself, where 
if I was doing radio or sometimes when I'm doing columns or I'm doing pieces, if I find somebody who is surprising that carries the message, I probably do gravitate towards them because I know the audience might be surprised. So what I'm thinking about in particular is one of my lovely friends. He's a Sikh gentleman. He speaks out against Muslim grooming gangs or rape squads, as we have here in the UK. Oh, you can't do that over there. Yeah, but I, I sense that perhaps I use him in the same way you're talking about because to an audience that's uneducated, a Sikh gentleman just looks like, ooh, somebody foreign. And yeah. yet he's speaking out on something they wouldn't expect him to speak out about. So, so I, I see, I see exactly what you're saying. And I, I suspect the media are guilty as well of saying, well, this person looks like this. So they must think this. And what a surprise if they don't or, or something like that. No, you're right about that. And we see that all the time. We see lots of race baiters out there. We see Jesse Jackson Mm -hmm. doing it constantly. These are people who exploit their brothers and sisters. And the media, they fall for it every time. I I think so. And I think as an outsider, and knowing that I am an outsider to America, even though I'd much rather be an insider, uh, I think watching the funerals of Aretha Franklin, uh, it was a curious thing. Did you see that? mm, Oh, my goodness. That was a mess, right? Yeah, it was unfortunate because I was kind of into it, even though I'm not into Aretha. I can't give, you know, I would no way line up with her honest fans. I obviously can sing her stuff, but that's it. Well, badly. (laughs) But then watching that sort of charade of the funeral and then people using it to political points score, it was kind of like a new evolution of where political discourse has gone into places it truly shouldn't. No shit, right? It's insane. Mm. Uh, Over the past... Five, ten years, uh, politics has just become something truly different. And I admit it has been very entertaining, especially with the new president we have today. Mm, I, I think so. But I think I think it's a really strange trend. I've, I've seen another funeral recently uh, or observed and uh, family members stood up and they didn't particularly get along with their father who had died. And Rather than do the sort of British thing, which would be just to sit quietly in your pew and say nothing and look sad, uh, or at least attend, uh, they went up to the front of the room and started sharing how them and their father had never got along. Massive overexposure of things an audience probably didn't need to hear at that point. And and I wonder what, what that's all about, whether this moment of almost sunshine, a spotlight being shone on you, no matter what the occasion, has kind of got to people. Everybody wants their moment in the spotlight, even if it's a funeral. And then there are those who are jealous of the person in the casket. Mm. I think that's true. Because they're not getting attention. I think that's so true. And there's this perverse glamorizing of funerals where people think about what their funeral will be like. Oh, my You know, what music they'll have. And you just think, this is a very pervert. I mean, great that people talk, like, I'm a big fan of talking about death, and I face my own mortality a few times. But I I think there's a bizarreness to this sort of self-obsession, the narcissist that wants to think about how glamorous their funeral (laughs) might be. That's a bizarre way to to look for attention in life if it involves your own death, I think. Yeah, that's a little a little too far there. (laughs) <laughs> a little strange, but of course we were talking earlier about uh, oversized uh, individuals, and there's one out there by the name of Tess Holiday. Ugh. How do you feel about her? I, I think it's a little unusual that the American press 
the newspapers, People magazine, and so forth, they really put her over. And they kind of are glamorizing a very unhealthy lifestyle, in my opinion. There's something really sad about it. You know, there, there was a lot of anger for me in terms of fat people generally in the UK. Yeah, they don't like so, you. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the larger I'm people. I'm not to interrupt you, but it's hard for us, isn't it, on this thing. But I, you know, fat people annoy me, and that's because, um, so you know, true libertarian. I don't mind what you do, how you live your life. I don't care. Just don't ask me to pay for it. But of course, if you live in a nationalised healthcare system as we have here, I am. Um, responsible for your, and I mean uh, the Brits, not you, your health choices. So if you make yourself morbidly obese and require new knees and new hips, I, as the taxpayer at a high rate tax brand, am going to pay a contribution towards your decisions. And of course, that's why I feel I have the right to speak about fat people in Britain. Um, and I did put on half my own body weight. So what am I? 130 pounds. I put on 50 pounds in three months and then took it off again in three months to prove that fat people are lazy. Um, it's called Katie Hopkins to fat and back. It's out there. Um, <laughs> it was a documentary. And, and so that's kind of where I, I put my sort of money where my mouth is, or at least I put a lot of food where my mouth is to prove that you are fat because you eat too much and you don't move enough. And, and that's just the simple truth. So Tess Halliday just makes me feel a bit sad. There was a movie of her, a video. I don't know if people saw it, maybe of her eating cake, looking pleased with herself, just after the Cosmopolitan front cover. I can't and see that. Some, I can't oh, see that. Tragic. Oh, Lord, yes. I, I feel bad for, for people that are of that size because diabetes will eventually take you out. It's taken out many great people like the late great comedian. Um, my God, how am I forgetting his name right now? Uh, Don't worry, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> I, I know, I, I got lost in my thoughts. I was thinking of, of two other questions to ask you here, but yeah. Don't worry. I, I was thinking I, of I uh, Patrice, Patrice O'Neill. There we go. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got it. I spent some time um, when I was making my fat documentary uh, at funeral parlors, actually. Hey, you and I are going back to death a lot. How strange. But um, in the supersize uh, caskets for the morbidly obese, you know, and they have to have these huge caskets oh, yeah. and then they have to be burnt at specialist crematoriums because the sheer power that's released from these bodies when they burn, it burnt down a couple of funeral parlors oh my God. in the UK because they were there was so much fuel, which is sort of comedic and tragic <laughs> at the yeah, same time. It is. But of course I have a dark sense of humor, so that's right up my alley. <laughs> And, and speaking, I think the best of us do. Oh yes, the the best ones are always the darkest. And <laughs> Katie, I must say, we we do talk lots about death, even you know, even as a theme here on the program, lots of all sorts of different discussion here. It's a it's a great time. And I am curious, what what are your thoughts of the afterlife? If you do have such thoughts of that? Yeah. So I um I think. There isn't such a thing as a life after this. I, I think you get one shot and then you're gone. Ah. However, um, I don't, I don't think that's the end of it. And that doesn't put it in a neat little box for me and make it, you know, make it packaged up. Well, that's the answer. So I'm okay. Let's keep going. You know, my, so my fits, um, going back to my epilepsy briefly, not, not in any kind of a narcissistic sense of obsession with self, but don't worry. Uh, my fits were supposed to get me 
within two years. So at the age of, what was I, 38, the prediction from the surgeon was that in the next two years, one of your fits will get you. So it was always an understanding between me, my husband and my parents that, you know, that was my timeline, two years. And so every morning on the road, uh, I would text my, the first thing I would ever do was text my husband, I'm here, text my mum, I'm here. And it's been a really weird transition for me, actually, um, since I'm fit free, not texting my mum and my husband in the first thing in the morning just to say, oh, I made it, I'm here. And so in a way, I made a lot of peace with the idea of leaving somewhat early a long time ago. And now every year for me is a win. Um, so I was kind of thrilled to make 40. It, it's very cool that I'm 43. And uh, I feel very at ease with the whole death thing. I I feel very much like I can talk about it easily. I'm comfortable talking about other people who've lost people. So when people struggle to write cards to people in sympathy, I can easily write that because I definitely feel that that juncture between life and death is always close. And maybe I see it like you just are in a room next door. I like this idea that, you know, you reach across your hand in hand still with the person. You just kind of walk with your grief. And I know that words live on and I know that memories, no, no one can take them away. And I know that the Japanese have a word that we don't called happy sad. I don't know the Japanese uh, pronunciation I should that's laziness on my part but they have a word a perfect word called happy sad and it's the word that summarizes best how you feel about someone that's gone because you think of them and when you think of them you're happy sad and, and oh. I really love all of that stuff that's great stuff and I, I tell my children on a regular basis that I will always be here and that isn't because I believe in any kind of sense of afterlife it's because the person remains, you know, if you shut your eyes and think of them, you can probably hear what they used to say. Or if I ask my children, what do you do if you've got a problem? I know right now all three would say, you tell mum and she'll sort it out. And so in a way, I feel like you live on because you leave your words behind. So that, that's where I reconcile with that whole thing. No doubt, no doubt. And of course, you will live on after you're gone through all your media appearances uh, through the airwaves as well, those those uh, sonic signature prints of our voices will carry on even after we're gone. That's the amazing part of this. This interview will definitely be listened to uh, by someone who wants to look you up or me up one day once we're gone. It's hard to imagine, but chances are that's going to happen, Katie. It's a weird thing, isn't it? And it I is. think I think um, you know it. What's it's it is what uh, makes us. Um, kind of great as humans is that uh, we get kind of carried away with tech things and uh, things we can buy or material right. things or whatever, 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 the trivia of life. But actually the real stuff of life is is the stuff of every day. You know, it's how you clean your teeth. It's the laugh you had with that person. The little things, it's yeah. It's the way that you, the little type, the minutiae of the moment is actually the grandest stuff of the universe, I think. And that's the glory of of running life with a kind of observational journalism is that the most interesting thing is is the minutiae of life. And that's why there's always material for people like you or me, because we can be fascinated with the with the small. Um, and I think that's really great. And then I think it's great that there's big thinkers out there like Elon Musk and others who want to make us an interplanetary species. We need those guys, too, right. so that we could deal with the minutiae and they can deal with the grand things of life. 
I agree. And just to bring us down after going up so high, I'm curious what your opinion is on Kimberly Guilfoyle and just Fox News in general. And perhaps you might not want to go into that, but I myself don't have a problem talking about that because I don't see myself being on red eye at 2 a.m. <laughs> I don't see myself being on that thing either. I think, um, you know, I think her, her decision to I think you should look. I think the general perception was that she was well loved. Right, right, right. Right. So I think that was, you know, I think that was the thing that you can't. I, I feel like people can't take away or that that doesn't detract from her is that she was well loved on Fox and she's had to or I'm not sure if it's had to or needed to sidestep now. Yeah, that's what's going on. Um, some strange uh, apparent, well, alleged sexual harassment claims going on involving her but mm-hmm. I, I don't exactly know the the whole story to it but of course we did have eric bowling and it makes me think is are those who are those two were, were they texting each other there was uh, i'm not sure entirely what went on there but what i do know and having met eric um in person and spent a little bit of time with him before actually because eric has a new show now doesn't he on yeah yeah um, is it crtv CR- I think, is that yeah correct? crtv it seems like all sorts of people go there to just kind of go away. Go there to go away. And also I think there's a sense of, uh, would we say, um, personal redemption. So mm, yes. when you're removed from somewhere, it, when you're isolated from mainstream, when you've lost perhaps the kudos or the following or definitely the salary that you could attain before, I think people end up on these channels and there is a sense of it, it feels like or well, they can believe it's a personal redemption. People will be pleasant and nice about them. They will find a new way. And it's like them coming back after a period in the wilderness. It, I think it's yes. and I think actually it has a lot more to do with the individual needing that than it does to do with the media marketplace presenting a demand for that. Yes, I will have to agree with you on that as well. And yes, all these different personalities that have been hit recently in the media by different things like the me too movement mm. um how exactly wh- where do you exactly stand on that are, are you believing some of these people that come out or do you oh, think there's more I'm not, to it? so I'm, I'm not a fan of, of the me too movement at all i think it brings out the very worst in women everywhere i i loathe um post the um Harvey Weinstein. I mean, that was the start of it, I suppose, from an outsider's perspective. Harvey Weinstein, it made me, you know, it was sort of vomit inducing all of these actresses who had clearly benefited from whatever they'd had to give Harvey Weinstein in order to achieve their parts and their Oscars and had uh, fellated him all the way to the Oscars. A bank yeah, uh, until the point where they were significantly large <laughs> that they could suddenly turn on a dime and call it. Well, all of those darlings are complicit. And, and believe me, true to my libertarian roots, I don't care, girls, what you did. If you transacted your youth and your beauty in exchange for a great part and an Oscar that you were thrilled with and the world loved, that's a fair transaction because you made it. But don't then take your receipt back and try and get your money back decades later when you've done all that work on your knees. Don't try and get your money back. Um, and that's what the Me Too movement has been for me. That's all of it. And I think it's morally repugnant. I think it's women at their worst. Um, and I decry all of those women. And we just had a case here 
Uh, you guys wouldn't have seen it at all, and I don't blame you. It's trash TV. But there's a show called Celebrity Big Brother, and um, a girl inside that house made ridiculous assertions about a guy that she said hit her and hurt her and bruised her. It was all a fallacy. It was captured on camera to be a lie. And to my mind, that's just what happens, is that these young girls get so muddled um, by, they're almost groomed by the Me Too movement into thinking the way to get attention is to complain about a man hurting you. Wow. And I think that's a very unfortunate state of affairs that we've arrived at with our young people. Um, and it's certainly not something I'm looking for my girls to repeat. My goodness, yes. It's a very strange thing. And every time I see one of his movies, I can't help but to think, what did she do to get that role? It's a weird one, isn't it? It is, and it ruins it for me because any any movie I watch now, I, I it just goes through my head now. And even the guys, it makes me think, what did he do? I know. And then I was with people the other night. Who was I with? Someone fairly powerful, anyway, who was, um, I, I fear I'm treading into the territory of gossip, which is never very noble, Ooh. but hey-ho, um, <laughs> that was suggesting that uh, Weinstein will get away with it. But not get away with it, per se, but he will be back. That yeah, he yeah, will yeah. redeem his character through his contacts sufficiently to be back producing movies again. And actually on the basis that he's the greatest genius of all time at producing movies, in inverted commas, whatever, whatever, that he will be back producing movies again when this movement has passed along. And that was the view of someone I know is well connected in London. But I mean, whether that's gossip or tittle-tattle, who knows? Well, that's okay. That's what this program is for. And <laughs> Gossip and tittle-tattle. Yeah, about everything. And we're, we're seeing Louis C.K. make make a return himself. Uh, you know about about Louis, right? Of course. My goodness. So I always wondered if he was going to make his return, and it seems like uh, perhaps that's what's going to happen here. All will be forgiven, I think, in probably less than a year. It's a it's a curious thing, uh, redemption. I think as a even as a theme, and I see that um, you know I, as I clearly am no great kind of uh, modern feminist, certainly not in the in the liberal sense or the left-wing sense where I need to shout about everything, wear a stupid hat and have a placard <laughs> saying my vagina's made of steel. I, I, none of those things. But I do see from a redemption perspective that uh, the redemptive kind of arc for men, I think uh, men can redeem themselves and are redeemed. And I can fully see that Harvey Weinstein may be back producing movies I think women who are seen to fall, the fallen woman, I, I don't think there is, I can't think of an example now of a woman that has been redeemed, uh, certainly not in the media. I, I'm, I'm probably wrong. Probably people are out there shouting about women that have been redeemed. But I think when women fall, um, they fall and are, and are let go more so. I don't know if that's true or not. I think you might be right, though. Hmm. I think it's definitely different for the women. I can think of, who is that uh, super famous American lady who's known for being fabulous at baking and flower arrangement, flower arranging and making your home fabulous? Martha Stewart? Yes. So one might argue that she was redeemed, I suppose. Ah, she yeah. went to prison for a fashion. Isn't that weird that she went to prison out of all people? I know. How bizarre <laughs> is that? Without any flower arranging or, or duvets or bed sets to make pretty. Without any curtains to rearrange. Uh, well, That's quite sinister, but yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that reminds me of Ice-T uh, from gang banger drug dealer in the streets to playing a cop on TV. I think that's so pretentious, by the way. 
<laughs> it is, isn't it? It's so funny how we, how, how someone's story and their ability to tell it in different ways can dictate whether they are redeemed or whether they have to remove themselves to a life in the wilderness shopping at Target, <laughs> which, by the way, I love. I love Target. It's my absolute favorite store. By the way, you guys don't have a Walmart over there, do you? I know. I know. So that's what I'm saying. I might have I'm seen I might have seen Tess Holiday at a Walmart <laughs> at about three in the afternoon. Well, you couldn't have bloody missed her, darling. To be fair, <laughs> she's very sodding easy to spot. My, but yeah, goodness. I, lo- I love Target. When I come to America, I whip into Target and I buy my children endless bits of trash that I can't buy in the UK, and they and they are jolly excited about it for a long time. So it's a jolly good thing for why, me. Why don't you just become an American, Katie? <laughs> Do you know what it is? There's this perverse sense of, I don't know, maybe I like pain, but that's definitely not an alleyway we should go down. <laughs> um, but I maybe, I always describe it as um, going to America is, is like getting into a warm bath, you know. So it's soothing and it's comforting and it makes you feel <laughs> nice and it makes you feel better about yourself. Whereas being in Britain and in the United Kingdom and in London in particular is like standing in a cold shower. You just have to endure it and hope that the pain goes away and that's rather what life is like for me so i feel like this endurance i have here and this pain i have to suffer not in some biblical way although i do describe myself as the christ of the outspoken (laughs) but i do have to kind of crucify myself and endure here in order that i can continue to speak not for people that don't have a voice i don't speak for anybody but in order to give some kind of feeling for people that no longer can speak because they'll lose their job, that they can still be heard in some way by a melange of voices like my own, probably like yours, like like other people out there who are still having their say. I, th- I think that's the sort of thing I need to do. And, and people email asking me to carry on doing it, and I feel some kind of sense of loyalty to them. So that's why... But perhaps I maybe one day um, I do see myself in one of those retirement homes in Florida. There <laughs> one you of go. Those, what you call them, mobile homes. Mobile homes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about that. I, I love a mobile home. I like, love that. Yes, I you, you totally definitely you definitely need to become a full American citizen here. I know. I know I do. I need to be a full American citizen. I have um, your flag up in every single room of my house, including my son. Who oh, has I the love largest that flag and i um and yes i need a mobile home in florida and i need a golf buggy too because you guys are really good at having golf buggies and i totally want one of them <laughs> so that's like my aspirational life that's my end goal i think you could accomplish that no doubt <laughs> you're on your way and okay. katie, katie we we are coming to a close here soon i didn't want to take up too much of your time no it's fine i'm curious are you Watching more or less TV shows or, or are you more of a movie type? Um, I'm going for none of those things. So my fascination is, uh, the spoken word and my absolute favorite thing is radio, um, podcasts mm. and others. I, I think actually there's something about the frenetic nature of modern life, social media and being relentlessly connected that um, there's something kind of pure about the spoken word and I do believe we listen 
so much more effectively without our eyes. And I don't mean that, you know, the gift of sight isn't a splendid one, but um, I think in audio, life is simply better. Oh, yes. So I spend most of my time listening. I obviously am a bit of a news stalker. Um, but being on the road, listening to people is actually my favorite kind of, would you call it a program, but my favorite kind of thing, talking to strangers. So uh, in the next couple of months, I'm off to Warsaw. Um, I'm hopefully going to be in Venezuela. And I want to get out and work with the Hindus who have had a hideous time in the media, given the Rohingya Muslims seem to control the narrative. So those are my adventures that I have planned. And, and I guess listening to those people is kind of my the media that yes. I engage with most. Understood. Yeah, I could I could definitely feel you on that one. Definitely, definitely listening to different shows out there via podcast is good for the mind, really. And mm. even my show, you definitely should listen back to perhaps Celebrity Death Pool. That's probably something that would uh, humor you a little bit there. Always, okay. a, always a fun segment to listen to. And of course, um, you're currently on the Rebel.media. Tell me a little bit mm-hmm. about that before we go. Okay, so Rebel are a it's an online platform. Um, it's a place where all of my content is at HopkinsWorld.com, and they are kind enough. Um, to host me there, they are, we are supported purely by, um, people that like what we do, like listening to us, likes hearing our reports. Um, so we aren't beholden to advertisers and therefore voices like mine aren't able to be silenced by lobbying groups or whomever. Um, and that's where all of my stories are shared. And the next exciting project that I have coming out soon after Ilya nine months work, I think, is my plasmoid documentary. That's the killing fields of South Africa. So that was my journey in South Africa with the white farmers who are being genocided off their land by black gangs. And so, right. um, you know, there's a real variety of work on there. Um, but because it's supported, it's funded by our supporters, that makes it quite a unique place. Um, it's a place I love, and because it's based in Canada, somehow it's still managing to survive. Uh, God knows for how long. But um, it's an outlet that, that works for me, uh, that I work for, and really we just work for the people that support us. So, yes, super grateful to Rebel for their support. Wonderful. So, Katie, it's been a complete honor and pleasure to have you on the program. You were just fantastic. I was amazed the entire time. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you very much for having me on. And um, and I'll speak to you somewhere, somehow. We'll do it again. again. Yeah, well, we'll definitely do this again, Katie. It's been such a great time. We, Everyone out there listening had a great time listening to you. They loved you tremendously. I loved you. We, we did a great thing tonight. People got to listen to you, the, the real you. They They got to learn a little bit about you, learn that you are just a very loving woman. I'm very regular. I'm very yeah, normal person. Normal. In that. And I think, yeah, normal people are good things to have around. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a good day. No problem, Katie. Take care. And there goes Katie Hopkins. What do you think about that? The great time, right? I had a great time. She was fantastic. And of course, if you are listening to this on a replay, keep in mind, you can listen every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Time live on the TuneIn radio app. And if you enjoy this program and want to help keep the program expanding, go to michaeldeacon.com and click the donate button there. I profoundly appreciate it. This program completely depends 
on its listeners. That means you sitting there right now. Be a friend. Share the show. I'm Michael Deacon. Thanks for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. We got to put a best of on Drew. We're going to lose every station we have. This thing sucks. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. End of days. The judgment day. The end of the world. There you go, friend.